This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Uh, John and I have an exciting episode in store. Nah, there's no real theme to this one, but two interesting articles that hopefully you'll enjoy. John, what's up first? Uh, so first, we're going to talk about C. diff. Uh, so this is an article called Sir 109 an oral microbiome therapy for a current C. difficile infection by Firstad et al. published in New England Journal, January 2022. Awesome. What was the research question? They wanted to know, will an oral microbiome therapy reduce risk for a current C. difficile? Yeah. So I just came off service and I feel like every block I see a patient with C. diff. Uh, so I-, I can buy why this is important, but what are your thoughts? Oh, I know. It just it, C. difficile is just such a challenging thing for many patients, especially those that develop the recurrent infections. From a Canadian standpoint, about 38,000 episodes of C. diff occur yearly. And in the U.S., that's about 460,000 cases. C. diff has a high morbidity and mortality. You know, the main risk factor for C. diff is exposure to antibiotics. And it's thought that this leads to changes in the gut microbiome, including losses of important bacteria. And, and one that they've sort of focused in on is, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, but firmicutes, which normally helps to modulate metabolites that help with host defense and colonization resistance. Uh, there's evidence that, you know, by producing secondary bile acids, these help inhibit C. diff spore germination and vegetative growth. You know, patients most at risk for recurrent infection tend to happen within kind of days to weeks of completing an antibiotic regimen. And studies have shown that recovery of normal bowel flora is associated with improved clinical response. So this SIR-109, it's an oral microbiome of this purified Firmicutes bacterial spore. And the question was, is this going to help reduce risk in patients who are at risk for recurrent C. difficile? Yeah, that's super cool. And yeah, I don't know how to pronounce this either. Is it Firmicutes? Is it Firmicutes? I don't know. Somebody hopefully will uh, correct us to tell us what we did wrong. Anywho, what was the study design? I know my apologies to the microbiologists out there, but uh, I'm going to go with Firmicutes for the time being. Uh, So this was a double blind randomized control trial at 56 US and Canadian sites between 2017 and 2020. Patients had to be 18 years or older, and they had to have three or more episodes of C. diff in the prior 12 months. And that could have included the acute episode that got them into the trial. They had to have confirmed acute C. diff with resolution of symptoms after receiving 10 to 21 days of standard antibiotic therapy. And they did some stratification both by age, so less than 65 years of age or older than 65 years of age, as well as the antibiotic that was received to treat the prior C. diff episode, so vancomycin versus fadaxomycin. Patients were randomized to get SIR-109 versus placebo for three days. They were monitored for eight weeks for recurrence of C. difficile, and they also took stool samples for something called a whole metagenomic sequence at baseline, uh, weeks one, two, and eight. So this SIR-109 was produced from four donor stools, and they were screened for you know important things like viral, bacterial, and parasitic uh, infections. So the primary outcome was a reduction in the risk of C. diff recurrence at eight weeks. 
Of note, those that were lost to follow-up, uh, discontinued participation, or died without recurrence of C. diff before eight weeks were actually defined as having C. diff recurrence, and that was intentional. There was a bunch of safety outcomes, and then they also looked at kind of concentrations and composition of people's stool after receiving therapy over those different time points. It was an intention to treat analysis, and they did do a post hoc analysis where they used kind of multiple imputations versus imputation of that C. diff recurrence assumption in the patients lost to follow up. Cool. Yeah, this is really interesting, like fascinating study. And I had no clue what metagenomics meant. And I barely know what it means now. But I'm doing this really cool study, which we won't go into now. But just to hijack things for a couple minutes, I now know what metagenomics means. So really, you know, when you're talking about genomics, it's like, hey, of this individual bacteria or virus or whatever, metagenomics are like, let's just see what's there. And often it's like this shotgun approach where you just see what genetic sequence are there. We know the genetic sequence of various bacteria, virus, whatever, and you can sort of match them up one-to-one using PCR and other fancy techniques. So anyway, this is just really cool. And imputation is something that analytically I'm very interested in. So anyway, back to you, not about me. Okay. What did the patients look like here, John? No, that's good because I did not know what the uh, metagenomic thing meant. So thank you for that. So 281 patients were screened. 182 were enrolled and randomized. And the average age was 65. 93% were white and 99% were outpatients. 82% completed follow-up at eight weeks. And then within the SIR group, five patients or 6%. And then in the placebo group, 28 or 30% of patients withdrew before eight weeks. And in fact, the most common reason for withdrawal was recurrence of C. diff, which happened in 3% of those SIR patients and 24% in the placebo group. Wow. Okay. And, and what were the main findings here? So the main findings was that SIR was superior to placebo at reducing risk of C. diff recurrence, 12% versus 40%, a relative risk reduction of 0.32, but an absolute reduction of 28%. The effect was seen based on those age stratifications as well. So it didn't matter if you were older or younger than 65, and also didn't matter depending on what you had last received for your prior C. diff infection for vancomycin versus fedaxomycin. Reassuringly, they did not show any signal for serious adverse events. Most of the common side effects were mild to moderate GI symptoms. Now, interestingly, they did show that three deaths occurred in the SIR group, but none were deemed to be drug-related after blinded investigators reviewed those cases in details. Uh, and then interestingly, just you know, you know, when they assessed the stools after the fact, they did show that there was higher engraftment of the Firmicutes bacteria in those that got the supplement. Yeah, that's super cool. Okay, so what are the main limitations here? I mean, of course, it is a small trial. And then you never know about how is this generalizable to, you know, non-Caucasian populations, because again, 93% of the patients were white. And, and does that matter? I don't know. And then, of course, this is only really generalizable to patients who've had multiple occurrences. You know, just a reminder that patients had at least three episodes of C. diff. Yeah, fair. You know, it's small. They got to do another study or maybe they won't. I mean, the FDA has a surprisingly low bar to approve medications, but like this is pretty incredible, right? And obviously we've heard about the fecal transplants, but that just, I don't know, like doesn't really seem like that's something that's actually something you can get as a patient. So this is yeah, really fascinating. But what's the take home point uh, from your perspective? 
Yeah, I mean, SIR-109 is superior to placebo in reducing risk of C. diff recurrence. The number needed to treat is 3.6 to avoid one recurrence. I mean, what happens after eight weeks? I guess we don't know, but luckily this trial is continuing to collect data so that they can speak to, like, what are the longer-term outcomes? Yeah, I guess that is a really great other limitation. Eight weeks, you know, maybe at eight months, it's all a wash. It's all the same, but all right, that's cool. And then uh, practice changing for you? I think you already kind of identified, like, I guess we'd see, like, what does the FDA say? But I think we want to show this in another randomized controlled trial before we kind of adopt it into practice. I mean, you can't even get it yet anyways, but it certainly is promising. Yeah, it sure is. All right. Well, like I said at the start, there's really no common thread to the two articles we're chatting about today. The one I'll be discussing is Treatment for Mild Chronic Hypertension During Pregnancy, uh, published in April 2022 in New England Journal, and it's the CHAP trial. Yeah, this one's like really hot off the press. Uh, so what was the research question here? Does targeting a blood pressure of less than 140 on 90 reduce the incidence of adverse pregnancy outcomes without compromising fetal growth? Okay. Uh, my partner's an obstetrician gynecologist, and I always have to ask her, what are the blood pressure targets for pregnancy? But why is this important? And uh, question, does she know the answer or does she deflect to the OB medicine? No, she's really good about it. We have an amazing OB medicine program here in Calgary, but uh, she's managing a lot of her patients' blood pressures. Oh, cool. All right. Well, then, heck, we should have her on this show. But anyway, so, you know, why is this important? I mean, Kimber could speak to this better than me, but I think there is consensus to treat pregnant women with severe hypertension, but for women with mild uh, chronic hypertension, and I should make it clear, if it's greater than 160 on 110, that's when we mean severe. So in the non-severe group, it's sort of unclear, you know, whether or not uh, patients should be treated. So that's why it's so important. Yeah. Okay. What was the design of the trial? So open label investigator initiated multi-center trial in centers in the U.S., of pregnant women with mild hypertension. So they were randomly assigned to a blood pressure goal of less than 140 on 90. So that's a sort of treatment arm or to just sort of the control arm. And in the control arm, treatment wasn't initiated unless they developed severe hypertension. And the cutoff used there was, you know, greater than 160 on 105. Uh, inclusion criteria. So it was either, um, new or known hypertension in a singleton fetus at a gestational age of less than 23 weeks, exclusion, uh, severe hypertension, known secondary hypertension, multiple fetus, high-risk coexisting condition, OB considerations that you should target a lower blood pressure, uh, or contraindications to the drugs used to treat hypertension in pregnancy. And then the primary outcome, uh, another composite, uh, this was a composite of preeclampsia with severe features up to two weeks post-delivery, medically indicated preterm birth at less than 35 weeks gestational age, placental abruption, or fetal or neonatal growth. And then the safety outcome was sort of small for gestational age uh, birth weight, below the 10th percentile. And then from a stats standpoint, just important to note, uh, they had a goal of you know recruiting 4,700 in total. Um, but after one of the DSMB meetings, they had a higher event rate than anticipated and were able to you know decrease to a lower sample size. And the results were analyzed using an intention to treat analysis. Great. What did the patients look like? So there were 29,000 women who were screened 
and a total of 2,400 who were enrolled. That's a big difference. But anyway, age uh, on average 32, 50% were black, 30% were white, 20% Hispanic, um, 20% had newly diagnosed hypertension. And at randomization, uh, blood pressure was 130 on 80, BMI of 37, about one-fifth had diabetes, 7% were smokers, and half were taking aspirin. All right. So what was the main effect here? So first off, you know, most folks in the treatment arm were treated with labetalol or nifedipine, which are, you know, I'd say like the go-to agents. Um, adherence was about 86% in the active treatment arm. So pretty good. And then the mean blood pressure over the course of the study was 130 in the active treatment arm versus 133 in the control arm. So not all that big of a difference. Um, so what did they actually find for the primary outcome? So the incidence of that composite primary outcome was lower in the active treatment arm. That is 30% versus 37% for a relative risk reduction of 0.8. And that's an absolute risk difference of 7%. So, you know, a number needed to treat of 14. In terms of safety outcomes, uh, no increased risk of small for gestational age, serious maternal outcomes and severe neonatal outcomes were similar between the two groups, if anything, a little bit lower in the active treatment group. And then there was also a lower incidence of sort of any preeclampsia in the treatment group with a 6% absolute risk reduction and 20% relative risk reduction. Again, pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, pretty important results. But I'm just, I'm really stuck because like, the blood pressure differences weren't that major between the two groups. Like, is it some other effect of the medication? What's going on here? Yeah, I mean, that's also just the limitation of reporting means or even medians, because if you had a lot more women in the control arm that were floating with a blood pressure of like 160, 170, etc., and then in the active treatment arm, if all of the women were still, you know, above target, but consistently in like 140s, mid 140s, means and medians alone don't tell the whole story about the real difference in blood pressures. Because again, you're just presenting it in the aggregate, but you lose out on the granularity. And in there might lie the explanation for why this big effect size was observed. Okay, yeah, that's really fair. Um, what were some of the limitations of the study? So a relatively small trial, but especially in the sort of world of pregnancy related trials, it's pretty big, you know, like that's impressive. I think another limitation is that it is unblinded. So of course, in an unblinded trial, uh, if you have a result or a primary outcome that's a bit subjective, well, you might be overestimating some of the effect sizes. So I would say the sort of lack of blinding is the biggest one here. Yeah, okay. And I guess like you kind of alluded to this already, but they started out with 29,000 women and kind of whittled it down to about 2,000 in some, I guess, generalizability sometimes comes into question. But I think they show that like they are pretty similar between those who did not get included in the, in the randomized control trial, if I, if I do believe. Yeah, that is a great point. The generalizability is a big issue when you go from sort of 29,000 to 2,000. But of all of the episodes you and I have ever recorded, this is the first time, I think, maybe with one exception, where we're describing the table one and we don't say the words, and 90% were white, <laughs> right? Like in this study, 
no, 50% were black and 25% were Hispanic. So it's certainly much more representative than most trials that you and I talk about. But it's also because those populations are more likely to have hypertension. So I completely agree. I think generalizability is is certainly an issue. And I also think it probably speaks to maybe, I don't know, like the hesitation to be included in a randomized trial if you're pregnant, perhaps, because what we see in the cardiovascular trials, you know, the sort of approached versus enrolled, sometimes they're at like 60%, 80%, whereas this is like 10%. Yeah, kudos to those will, you know, just agreeing to take part in these important research trials. Um, okay, so what was the take-home point here? So I think the take-home point is pretty clear, and that's that most women who are pregnant who have hypertension, even if it's mild, they should have a blood pressure targeted to less than 140 on uh, 90. Okay. I mean, I don't know how many pregnant patients you end up seeing. I don't see a lot, again, because we have a really good OBIM program here in Calgary, but is its practice changing for you? Yeah, so kind of similar here, except that at Sinai on the weekends, I'll cover the OB medicine. So it's not as though I'm seeing, actually, I will be seeing some new consults as well. So definitely, I think this would be practice changing for me. And of course, you know, with these medications, um, they're safe, they're well tolerated, but you got to have um, a buy-in um, with the patient, of course, and also thinking about any other approaches that are non-pharmacologic to reduce the blood pressure are important as well. Yeah, big time. And, and I guess like this trial just speaks to the fact that you could counsel your patient that, well, these important outcomes are reduced in a meaningful way by controlling blood pressure. So that's, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, I completely agree. All right. Anyway, John, so next up is the good stuff. What do you have for us to talk about? Uh, so for my good stuff this week, just going to kind of give a shout out to highlight to the SNAP trial. Uh, this is an international randomized control trial that recently enrolled its first Canadian patient. And it's looking at a really important set of questions specifically related to staph aureus bacteremia. Uh, and how can we treat staph aureus more effectively? And one of the important questions that they're going to try to address is, is oral step down safe? Is it effective? So I really look forward to seeing the results from this study when it comes down the pipeline. Yeah, that's super cool. And like, we need more pragmatic trials like this. I'm just on their website and it looks like they've randomized uh, 19 patients so far. I'll have to see, I think Sinai is a site for this. So I'll have to see what we can do here to recruit some more. So on my end, uh, two quick ones. The first one, thinking about missing data and imputation, there's a great stats video uh, from New England Journal of Medicine Evidence that gives a brief primer on how on earth do you handle missing data in clinical trials? And one of the main approaches is imputation. So maybe I'll, I'll toss the link in this uh, show notes for people to uh, give that a listen. And then next is a tool that my research team is working on we're between the name, it might be JRNL1, like Journal1, or Journal1.com. But anyway, we're creating a tool that hopefully will take out the pain and friction of finding journals to submit to and then figuring out you know what on earth they want and how to format things. And then it uses some basic natural language processing to help you draft your cover letter and fill out whatever checklist document you need to include. So two good stuff, I guess, for this week. 
Yeah, that program that you guys have come up with is pretty impressive. I, I still don't understand how AI or natural language processing works, but what it looks capable of pulling off is quite a feat. Yeah, well, John, for you know three easy payments of $99.99, I would be happy to teach you more about AI and natural language <laughs> processing. All right, I'll see if I can schedule something. All right, okay, take care, John. See you later. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support. <laughs>